Genesis chapter 49, and uh, it's a joy to be back in the Lord's house with you. There's no place I'd rather preach than here, amen? And that's a good thing because no one else will have me, but that's okay. I like being here. I like preaching to my people. Genesis chapter 49 tonight, and uh, I'd like to read the first few verses and you're going to feel like it's a repeat of last week, but I promise you it's not. We've been studying through the blessings of Jacob upon his sons when he's on his deathbed. And uh, he has already bestowed a blessing. Uh, it may look like a blessing in disguise, but it is a blessing upon his oldest son, Reuben. He has pronounced a blessing upon Simeon, and he has also pronounced a blessing upon Levi. Now, these first three blessings, I'm going to confess to you, they're not real easy. They're not real comfortable. But we preached a little bit about it this morning, how that the chastisement of God, though it may be unpleasant at first, though it may not be comfortable, though it may not be something we'd wish for, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And so it is a blessing in that Jacob is revealing some things about his sons, sometimes about their history, sometimes about their nature, and sometimes about their future, and sometimes about uh, their uh, ancestors, or I guess you should say their descendants that would come after them. And uh, we understand that Jacob is speaking under the inspiration of God, and inasmuch as he is speaking under inspiration, there are elements of these things that delve into the prophetic. So I want us to read the first few verses, and I'll say a few words about some of those things, and then we'll preach from verses 5 through 7. Verse 1 says this, And Jacob called unto his sons, and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you in the last days. Gather yourselves together, and hear ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. Reuben, thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, then defilest thou it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Under their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united." For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. We ask, Lord, now that you would uh, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. And God, that you might touch on the very depths of our beings, on the very issues of our lives. Father, that your divine hand might grasp us this evening and might deal with us according to thy will. Father, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I want to remind you once again that as you study these 12 blessings in Genesis chapter 49, there are basically three applications of this portion of Scripture. We understand that inasmuch as it relates to Israel and to Jacob and to Jacob's sons, that we can understand this portion of Scripture in a dispensational sense. Now you say, preacher, what do you mean by that? Well, there is a prophetic application to these things. 
Notice the phrase that Jacob uses in verse number 1. He says uh, that he wants to tell them what will befall them in the last days. Now, that is not language that is used lightly. No portion of the Word of God is used lightly. And that phrase, last days, is a very distinct prophetic phrase that oftentimes deals particularly with the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the events that unfold surrounding it. But in this particular context, is enlarged and expanded to include everything from the moment that uh, God began to deal with Israel as a nation all the way to the day when all of the promises of God are fulfilled in a real and literal sense upon the nation of Israel. You see, at this point in their history, they have been a family. But God is going to draw the curtain closed on this family. And when He opens the curtain again, it will not be a family, it will be a nation. When you come to the close of Genesis chapter 50, it's the last that anything is said about Israel as a person or the sons of Israel or children of Israel as a family. And we see them in Egypt as a nation or in Egypt as an enslaved people that God will soon set free by the blood of the Passover lamb and lead by His bosom and by His hand through the wilderness. And so whenever God uses this terminology here, it is very distinctly in a prophetic sense. And you can look at each of these prophecies and you'll find that they pertain to a particular period of time in the nation of Israel. We see in Reuben a picture of the nation of Israel in their rebellion. Uh, before they ever rose to any sort of excellency, God had all these opportunities for them. And when we preached on it, that's sort of what we talked about, squandered opportunities. I mean, never had there been a nation with all the benefits that Israel had, and yet continually they backslid and backslid and backslid on the Lord. Under Simeon and Levi, we see a picture of the divided nation of Israel. Most of you know that after the death of Solomon, his son Rehoboam ascended the throne. And a man by the name of Jeroboam, a a rebel and an insurrectionist who had been in exile in Egypt, uh, comes back to Israel and he leads a, a rebellion against Rehoboam. And the nation is split into two separate kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. God promises that He would scatter them, and certainly God did. The northern kingdom of Israel was completely obliterated under Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian emperor, uh, never again to be restored in the way that it once had been. The southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin, the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, was preserved through their Babylonian exile, uh, but they went through much hardship through the judgment of God. Judah portrays for us the time of the Lord's earthly ministry. After Judah, you have uh, the uh, Issachar, uh, or uh, Zebulun, excuse me, in verse number 13, and that deals with the uh, diaspora, the scattering of the nation of Israel to the nations. Issachar deals with uh, their tribute and their servitude, uh, the hardship that oftentimes the nations they have dwelt in have laid them under. And so you have a dispensational understanding, and on and on we could go through it, Uh, And we will as the Lord leads us throughout the next few weeks. But you have a dispensational understanding of these Scriptures. And there's a prophetic sense. Let me say not only is there a prophetic sense, but there is a personal sense in which we can understand this passage. Or we might say this, we can interpret it dispensationally, but we can also interpret it dispositionally. So what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, uh, Jacob is saying things to these boys about who they are. 
I don't know that anyone, maybe outside of our spouse, knows us quite as well as our parents do. They've watched us grow up. They've seen our personalities develop. And no doubt, Jacob, over the many years that he had lived with his sons, he had watched their personalities develop. And the things that he says about them are indicative of their character or lack thereof. And the things that are brought to fruition in the tribes are really just uh, amplifications of the particular personalities of the young men. So there is a a personal sense in which we can understand this. But then let me say this. There is a practical sense in which we can gain some truth from these verses. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, there's what these verses mean to the Jews. There's what these verses meant to Jacob's sons, but then there's what these verses mean to the justified New Testament believer. What do they mean to you and I? There are some important lessons that we can learn that I believe will help us in our walk with Christ. When we preached about Reuben, we looked at all of his opportunities squandered. We looked at Simeon, we saw sin's consequences. But tonight I want to preach on Levi. And Levi presents to us this truth that God is a God of second chances. Now, let me tell you something. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I mess up. Anybody like me in the room? I mess up. I sin. I do things wrong. And I'm glad, though I may do something wrong, I don't have to stay wrong. I can get right. And my God loves me, and He'll not throw me away to the trash heap of eternity. God has made provision. It's not the will of God that we sin, but God knows that we're going to sin. Uh, It may not be God's will that we sin, but it's certainly within the spectrum of God's wisdom that we are going to sin. And because of that, He's given us a provision that we might address that sin in a way that would be pleasing to Him. Or can I say it like John said it in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1? He said, These things I write unto you that you sin not. But then He says, If any man sin... Now, that's to say, I don't want you to sin, but I know you're going to sin. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father... Jesus Christ the righteous. And He is the propitiation, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. I'm glad we may mess up, but I'm glad we've got a God that will forgive us. We may do something that hurts our fellowship or our communion with Him. I'm glad that my relationship is hid with God in Christ Jesus. I'm glad that I'm justified and stand within Him. My sonship is never in question. It is unchangeable. But i tell you something, friend. There's times that I do things that hurt my fellowship with Him and my relationship with Him. And I'm glad when I've done those things that I don't have to stay in those conditions. I can get right and I can live right. And so when we look at the prophecy concerning Simeon and Levi, I want us to notice what is the same and I want us to notice what is different. Because as you read through your Bible, you won't find a lot of references to Simeonites. And there's a reason for that. When faced with God's Word, they rebelled and they entrenched themselves in their sin nature. But when we look at Levi, we find that the Levites had a rich storied history and a key role in the nation of Israel. Now, what was the difference between the two? Could I say to you tonight that the difference was how they dealt with their sin? Let me tell you, the difference between you and I, the difference between the guy laying in a ditch tonight and you and I, and I'm not talking about just those that are unsaved. Let me tell you something. I know Christians whose lives are a mess tonight. I know people that know God whose life is in pieces tonight. You say, what's going to make the difference? Preacher, how can I ensure that my life is not going to wind up a mess? How can I ensure that I'm not going to quit on God, give up on church, and get out of the will of God, and wind up uh, miserable and old and bitter and lonely? How can I guarantee that I'm going to stay in fellowship with the Lord? You better learn how to deal with sin right. Because sin's going to happen, so you better learn what to do with it when it does happen. 
I want us to notice a few things tonight, and I hope the Lord will help me if I, as I preach this. We're going to be in a few different places. But I want to say a word about the rebuke of Levi that we find in our text. And you say, what do you mean, preacher? Wasn't the same thing said to him that was said to Simeon? Oh, now you're on to something. That's exactly right. The very same thing that was said to Simeon was the very same thing that was said to Levi. In fact, I want you to notice verse 5. God speaks about the same tendency that they had. He said this, Simeon and Levi are brethren. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. Now, we talked a little bit about it last Sunday night. But God is pointing to the fact that these two boys, these two brethren, they were common in their crime, they were common in their guilt, but they were also common in their nature. Uh, you know, they were the kind of kids. How many of you raised kids, raised teenagers ever? Any, you, you ever have one of them moments where you're sitting there in your easy chair, you're sitting on your couch, and all of a sudden a stillness and a quietness uh, spreads over the house and you can't hear a thing and you think to yourself, uh-oh, what are they into? <laughs> It's too quiet in this place. Something must be going on. Simeon and Levi, they were those kinds of brothers. When you saw them, we might use this terminology, they as thick as thieves. Every time you saw Simeon, you'd see Levi. Every time you saw Levi, you'd see Simeon. If there was something that Simeon was getting into, Levi was right there with him. They were partners in crime. They were brothers of the closest sort. They had the same tendency. They had the same personality. And God points to this unique bond that they shared. But to me tonight, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of this, that though I may walk in the new man, the old man still walks around with me. Though I may choose to yield unto the Lord, and I hope I do, and I ought to, and I hope you do too, it doesn't change the fact that still deep within the depths of me is a sin nature, is a wickedness, is a rebelliousness against a thrice holy God. You say, preacher, it's not within me. Oh, yes, it's within you. Uh, you may fi fancy yourself as a Levi, uh, but Simeon is right there along with you every step of the way. You may claim that you'd never get out, but let me tell you something. A lot better people than you or me have give out and give up on God. We have a tendency to look around sometimes at people that get out of church and we say, well, that never happened to me. You know that probably at one time or another they're sitting around thinking the same thing. They're sitting around going, boy, I'd never get out. Boy, it'd never be me. I'd never let that happen in my life. But you know the funny thing about it? You find a man in the New Testament by the name of Eutychus that fell out of church. You know how you remember that, Eutychus? Because if you'd fell out of the window and broke your neck, you'd cuss too. Amen? Eutychus fell out of the church house when Paul was preaching. You know what that teaches me? That teaches me that people don't fall in, but they most definitely fall out. Uh, you're not going to just trip into church, but you, you better believe you can trip and fall out of church. Nobody plans on going down that path, but you know what? It's within you, and it's within me. And we better keep it in mind that it could just as easily be us. You say, it'd never be me, preacher. Oh, it could be you because you have the same tendency that Simeon and Levi had. You have the same sin nature buried deep within you and sometimes buried not so deep within you that seeks to rule and to reign and to kick God off the throne of your heart. And if you don't keep Him in check, He'll have His way. They had the same tendency. Look at verse number 6. The Bible says this, O my soul, come not thou into their secret. Now, He's speaking about the, the cruel murder of a man by the name of Shechem and his father Hamer and their brethren back in Genesis 34. And we spent a lot of time on it last week. I won't spend a lot of time this week. But listen to how God describes it. He says, Under their assembly mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Let me say that they had the same tendency. Let me say they were both guilty of the same transgression. 
They had both equally shared in the murder of this party of people. They both stood equally guilty before the eyes and mind of God. Let me tell you something. There ain't a single one of us, and I hope you don't think ill of me for saying this, but there ain't a single one of us that want everything that we've ever done run out into the open for everybody around us to see. I don't care who you are, whether it is in the the skeletons in your closet or whether it is in the secret that you confide or whether it is in the depths of your thoughts and intents of the heart. Somewhere, every one of us has committed things that we'd never want to admit, that we'd never want to acknowledge, that we'd never want to be revealed to this world. Every one of us are guilty of things in our lives. I'm glad that even though we're guilty, I'm glad there's a grace that can cover those things, aren't you? Because I, you know, I, now I will, I will confess this to you. I, I've never murdered a man, but I've probably hated a man within my heart. I've never stepped out on my wife, committed adultery, but I, I, I've probably had lust in my heart at times. Uh, listen, I, I, I've never, I, I've never just out bold faced tried to hurt somebody and lie about somebody in a, in a vicious or malicious way, but I've probably got a few of them white lies on my record. I've never actually went about to rob a bank or to steal or to take someone's possessions or their car, but there's probably some things God's entrusted me with that I took and used for my own pleasure instead of using it for His glory. You see, we're all guilty of transgressions in our life. We may claim we're not, but we're just fooling ourselves. If any man say he have no sin, he lies to himself. He deceives himself. Every one of us sins. They had the same transgression. But look at verse 7. Look what God says. He says this, Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Let me say that both of them had the same treatment applied to their lives. God says this, I'm going to scatter you and I'm going to divide you. I'm, listen, God don't play no favorites. Somebody say amen to that. He is no respecter of persons is the biblical way of saying that. And you may think that you're too good for God to judge your life, but you're not. I may think sometimes that I'm too important and God can't afford to judge my life, but God can afford to judge my life. There's not a single one. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. There's not a single one of us in this building that is indispensable to the work of God. Every single one of us, if we get sin in our life, we can be put on a shelf. There's not a single one of us that God looks at and says, I'm offended by their sin, but I need them too badly. God can use any and everything. In fact, God tends to use the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. Every single one of us, if we get out of line and live out of the will of God, you'll never lose your salvation. But let me tell you something, you can lose your service. You can lose that place of service that God gives you. Uh, you say it never happened to me. Can I just point something out to you? I, I don't know if you'll agree with me or not, but that's okay. Uh, not everybody does. I still ain't figured that out, but some people do disagree with me. You look at the life of the Apostle Paul. Now, not everybody's going to agree with what I'm about to say, but that's all right. The Apostle Paul, when you look at the New Testament record of Paul's life, Paul basically was a man that lived apart unto God. But there came a time in Paul's life when he said, I want to go to Jerusalem. You say, well, what's wrong with that, preacher? Well, God had already shut that door for the Apostle Paul. They had already spurned and rejected. Uh, Paul had already, uh, he had already cast the dust off of his feet. He had already wiped his hands. He already said, henceforth, I'll go unto the Gentiles. God had already changed course in his life. But he still had a love and a heart for his Jewish brethren. And he said, I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to preach the gospel to my brethren. And God, on several separate occasions, said, Paul, that's not my will for you. He used several different people. First and foremost, you know who he used? He used the Holy Ghost. 
Let me tell you something. It ought, it ought to be a little alarming to us when God has to start using people in our life because that's a good indication that we've quit listening to the Holy Spirit in our life. And it's even worse when God has to start using problems in our life. Because that's a good indication we've quit listening to the people in our life. You see, the first way God speaks to His people is through His Spirit and His Word. When we spurn those things, sometimes God has enough grace to give us a, a Nathan in our life that will come and point their finger in our face and say, Thou art the man. You've stepped out of the will of God. You're not living right. and We ought not treat those people with hatred or malice, uh, but we ought to treat them as a friend and as somebody that is exercising the grace of God in our lives. And then oftentimes when all of a sudden our world has fallen to pieces, we probably ought to stop. Let me tell you something. Problems don't always come as a result of being out of the will of God. Somebody say amen there. Right? We all have that established, right? But sometimes problems do come as a result of us being out of the will of God. I feel like so oftentimes we try to kick back against the prosperity preaching of this world and we try to tell people that sometimes you'll suffer even when you're in the will of God. And that's true, brother. I mean, that is true. But I think sometimes in an attempt to do that, we neglect to warn people that oftentimes God will remove a hedge of protection around somebody. Oftentimes God will set His hand against some of His children. Oftentimes God will begin to exercise chastisement. And if we go far enough, God will even deliver us our flesh over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit might be saved it's dangerous business to get out of the will of God it's dangerous business to run from the will of God and so God is speaking to Paul but you know what Paul says he says none of these things move me none of these things move me neither count on my life so dear and he says I'm going to Jerusalem you know what happened after that Paul began to make a series of slip-ups in his life you find that the first thing he does he gets there and he he takes a Jewish vow now, I'm not Paul's judge, and, and really Paul wouldn't care whether he's judged by me or not, but let me just give you my two cents. I, I, I'm too broke to give you much more than two cents, so I'll give you two cents about it. This is the man that wrote the book of Galatians. This is the man that said this, if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. This is a man that says what things were gained to me, speaking of his righteousness in the law, what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ Jesus. This is a man that said that if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. This is a man that said that the keeping of the law makes the cross of Christ of none effect. This is a man that says I threw off the shackles of Old Testament Judaism that I might breathe in the liberty of New Testament grace. And now all of a sudden he's taking a Jewish vow and he's shaving his head. Then immediately after that, he gets into some trouble. Everywhere Paul went, you'll, you, can trace, you can trace the word Paul and the word uproar all through the book Acts. And so there's an uproar, and Paul gets taken by a group of people. And normally, you know what Paul's uh, normal knee-jerk reaction was to do when he got in prison? is to start singing and testifying and shouting and rejoicing and praying. But instead, you know what he does? He doesn't appeal to the Lord. He says, I appeal unto Caesar. Now, that's interesting. Man, that don't sound like Paul to me. That don't sound like Paul to me. He says, I appeal unto Caesar. And so unto Caesar he went. The Bible even says one of the leaders said, I would let this man go. But he's appealed unto Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, once he appealed unto Caesar, no one could change that fate. He had the right and responsibility. Once he invoked that option and that privilege, he was going to go to Caesar. He gets on a boat, it's shipwrecked, and on and on, trial after trial, struggle after struggle happened in Paul's life. And we find that at that point, from there on, according to Scripture, we have no record of Paul ever planting another New Testament church. 
Now, God used him to pin down 14 books of the New Testament. I'm not saying God quit using him, but I am saying this. I think God quit using Paul in the way Paul wanted to be used. Paul wanted to go about and preach the gospel. Paul wanted to plant churches. That was his life. That was his passion. That was his desire. But because he stepped out of the will of God, God said, All right, Paul, I'm going to have to put a chain on you, and I'm going to have to tighten things up a little bit. And he put them on the shelf. And Paul was never used in the way that he had once been used. It's dangerous business getting out of the will of God. Dangerous business. God tells Simeon and Levi, says, boys, because of how you've lived and because of what you've done, I'm going to scatter you. I'm going to chastise you. I'm going to bring judgment into your life. And yet when we trace their history, we find two very different conclusions. Simeon goes on to diminish as a tribe by the time of their last reckoning. There's only 22,000 even named in the tribe. And in fact, they shrunk to such a small size by the time they went into the land that they didn't even inherit their own individual portion in the land. Instead, they were given a portion within the portion of Judah. They were too small uh, and, and too weak and too diminished to even enjoy what God had provided for them. By the way, let me say this. There's a lot of unhappy Christians. You know why? Because they're too weak and too small and in too much of a wreck to enjoy enjoy what God has given them in the Christian life. Uh, listen, I, I'm not trying to be judgmental, uh, but the righteous man judgeth all things. And there's a problem. Now, I, when I go before the throne room of God, it is rare that I do not have things I must confess. But something's wrong when 99.9% of our prayer life is just the confession of sin. Uh, it, it ain't no wonder some of us don't want to pray more. Before we can ever get down to business with God, we've got to spend four and a half hours because it's been four and a half months since we've prayed and we've got to try to get right and get things settled. We don't get to enjoy that sweet communion. Oftentimes when we open the Word of God, uh, listen, it, it, it's not sweet bread for our soul. Instead, it's a sharp two-edged sword and it's cutting, coming and going and it's trying to dissect and purge and prune away in our life because it's been so long since we've had a real intimate relationship with the Word of God. I'm saying this, uh, if you keep short accounts with God, you'd enjoy your Christian life a whole lot more. A whole lot more. All these things are true in Simeon and Levi's life and yet they wind up in different conditions. Simeon is basically obliterated and never really mentioned in a significant way. And yet the tribe of Levi is found all the way through the Old Testament. What was different about them? Well, I want you to notice not only the rebuke of Levi, but I want you to think with me for a moment on the response of Levi. Now, we don't have any record, really, of Levi as a person responding to this. But I'm sure there's no doubt that these prophecies that Jacob gave were probably passed down and carried down all through the generations, all through the, the Egyptian bondage, all the way down until the tribes were numbered again. And there's no question that they probably were aware of the things God had said about their ancestor. And they responded in three unique ways. In three different instances. And I believe these are indicative. I'm not saying that these occasions are the sole reason. But I believe they're indicative as to the way they learn to deal with sin. Now I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Would you do that? Exodus chapter 32 tonight. As you find your place, let me set the scene for you. Moses is on the mountain with God. And God is revealing and giving His Ten Commandments. The very finger of God is is placed down upon stone tablets, and God begins to write out His holy commandments and His holy law. The children of Israel are down at the bottom of the mountain, and a very sordid and unrighteous scene begins to unfold. 
they begin to go unto Aaron, who Aaron himself is a Levite. And they say, Aaron, we want you to make a golden calf for us because we want to worship the gods that brought us out of Egypt. Well, Aaron had enough religion about him that he couldn't quite stomach that. So he said this. He said, well, we'll keep a feast unto the Lord, but I'll give you your idol. That's a good picture of what's happening to Christianity today. Am I right? You know, they want the paganism of the world, but they want it painted up like it's Christianity. And so there they are all dancing around this calf. And Moses is with Joshua and he's coming down off the mountain. The tablets are in his arms. And as he comes down off the mountain, he begins to hear a noise. Now, to the young man of God, that noise sounded like it could have been the noise of war. Uh, But to the old man of God, he could tell the difference between folks that was fighting and folks that was fooling about. Let me say it's a good lesson to those of us that are young and in the ministry and those of us that are trying to serve God that a lot of times people that are pretending to do something and people that are really doing something sound a lot the same. You know, there's a lot of folks that, I mean, they make the sound of war, but you get to really looking at the way they're living, and they're playing child's games. It's recess time. And so as they're coming off the mountain, Joshua says, Hey, it sounds like war down there. Moses says, That's not the sound of war. He said, They're not crying for mastery. They're not crying because they're being defeated. He said, That's the sound of playing. That's the sound of unrighteousness. That's the sound of revelry that's taking place. It says in verse number 25 of Exodus 32, And when Moses saw that the people were naked... For Aaron had made them naked under their shame among their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. The Bible says this, And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about three thousand men. Let me say, number one, that Levi determined their direction that they wanted to go. There upon the mountain, they had a choice to make. And it wasn't based upon leadership because the leader of their tribe at that time, Aaron, and Moses, of course, was a Levite too, but he's viewed sort of apart from himself. Aaron is the head of the tribe of Levi at this time. He had already gone into full-on apostasy at that very moment. But they personally had to make a choice what direction they wanted to go. Moses steps forward. I don't know if he drew a line or not, but certainly figuratively speaking, he draws a line in the sand and he says, all right, on one side is this nonsense and on the other side is the Lord God of Israel. And what side are you going to choose? Levi says, I'll stand on God's side, even if it means standing alone. Let me tell you something. We all sin in our lives, every one of us. But you're going to have to, if you really want to get victory over sin, if you really want to live under the glory of God, you're going to have to make up your mind that you're not going to live a life of sin. You're going to make mistakes. I'm going to make mistakes. But you better get it settled in your heart and mind that when you do make mistakes, it's just that, a mistake. It's not a way of life. When we read what John says about committing sin, we understand he's talking about committing a life unto sin, committing themselves unto sin. Let me tell you something. I've known lots of Christians that they got a little bit of sin in their life and they just plumb give up. They said, I've messed up. I've made a mistake. I'm just going to give up and quit on God. That's a bunch of nonsense. You're going to make mistakes, but you better go ahead and make up your mind. When you do make a mistake, you're going to get it right before God. I've shared this before, but a man used to go here, made the statement. He was talking about church attendance, and he said this. He said, you know, that's really a decision you only have to make one time. And uh, he went on to explain. He said, now, there's going to be times you can't be in church, providentially hindered and stuff. But if you make up your mind that 
Unless I'm providentially hindered, I'm going to be in the house of God. Unless something keeps me out of the house of God. I'm talking about really keeps me. I don't mean, I don't mean folks, you know, show up and don't want to go home. I don't mean there's a game on. I don't mean we're worn out. But I mean when you make up your mind, if I'm at all able to be there, I'm going to be there, then the decision's made. And you're going to have times when you're providentially hindered. You're going to get sick. There's going to be flat tires. There's going to be things go wrong. But that decision has already been made. I think that's a pretty apt analogy of what our entire attitude needs to be about all matters of Christian life. We need to make our mind up, man. I mean, we need to get serious about this thing. And as it relates to sin, the first step is making your mind up that you're not going to live in sin. When you do sin, you're going to confess and forsake that sin. You're going to get it out of your life, and you're going to get right with God, and you're going to go on. It's not time to give up. It's not time to lay down. Listen to me. There's people dying and going to hell. Uh, The world is getting worse every moment. Jesus is coming soon. This ain't time to play games. We better get serious and get settled about this thing and determine our direction. Boy, somebody's with me. (laughs) I like it. They determined their direction. I want to give you a second thing. Turn with me to the book of Numbers and turn to chapter number 25. Let me say the first step is they determined their direction. They made up their mind, man, we're not going to stay in sin. We're not going to live in sin. We're siding with the Lord. But then I want you to look at Numbers chapter 25. There's a very interesting story that's shared. And I will confess to you, I've read over it, no telling how many times, but I never understood the significance until studying for these messages. And look down at verse number 6. The Bible says this, And behold, one of the children of Israel... Now, well, I'll tell you what, let's let's back up just a hair. Look look back at the beginning of the chapter. I've got it in my notes, so now I've got to turn over there, okay? But I want you to look back at the beginning of the chapter and look at verse number 1. Look at the condition of the nation of Israel at this particular moment in their history. We might say this, that they're on the precipice in their Christian walk. Things can either go very good or things can go very bad. And the tribe of Levi, of course, is present in all this. It says in verse 1, And Israel abode at Shittim, and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. And the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself unto Baal Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. In other words, idolatry is beginning to take root in the nation of Israel. And the Lord said unto Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, Slay ye every one of his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. So God's judgment is being poured out. It says, And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, now you understand Aaron's a Levite, and so his boy is a Levite, and his boy's boy is a Levite, when he saw it, he rose up from among the congregation. And took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent, and thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel, and those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. Now let me pause there and say this, there's a lot of significance even right there. We see the harshness with which the Levites learned to deal with sin. But it even begins to be more interesting. It says this, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, 
Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consume not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore say, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it in his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. Notice this. Now the name of the Israelite that was slain, even that was slain with the Midianitish woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, a prince of the chief house among the Simeonites. Boy, it sounds like the old alliances are dying away, doesn't it? We might say this, <coughs> that not only did they determine their direction, they weren't going to live in sin, but they identified sin's influence in their life, and they dealt with it properly. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, whenever uh, Phineas sees this man enter into the tent in blatant violation, disrespect, and defiance of the God of Israel, when he sees this take place, he understands in that moment that if they continue to be permissive with this kind of paganism, it's going to destroy the nation of Israel. And so what he does is he severs that relationship. Let me say this. Levi and Simeon, they had a lot of the same problems. But eventually Levi caught on that Simeon was part of his problem. And when he realized that, he dealt with it and he did away with it. You know how Paul describes it in the New Testament? He says this, that we're to give no place to the devil and we're to give no occasion to the flesh. We all have weaknesses, don't you agree? We all have weaknesses, so we ought to use some wisdom about our weaknesses. Now, we ought not ever flirt with sin. We ought never sidle up close to sin. But there might be some things in our life that aren't even sin that we have to keep a distance from because we know the tendencies that live deep within us. In other words, when he realized what was leading him down that path, he forsook it and he separated from it. One of the great marks in a young person's spiritual walk is when you see them start to surround themselves by people that love God when they start getting rid of the friends that want to get them into the trouble, get them into the nonsense, lead them away from the house of God, and they begin to surround themselves with people that are going to build them up in the most holy faith instead of tear them down from the most holy faith. And even as adults, we need to understand that there are things that lead us away from a close walk in communion with the Lord, and we need to purge those things out of our life, and we need to make our minds up that if there's anything that could pull us from Christ, we're going to push it away. Anything that could lead us away. You know, a lot of us, we spend a lot of time confessing the same sin over and over and over and over again. I don't know if that's what Paul said, meant when he said, the sin which doth so easily beset us. But I know most of us do have besetting sins in our life. Something that it seems like we grapple with over and over and over and over again. You say, preacher, what do I do about that? Track it down, go into the tent, nail it to the floor and get rid of it once and for all. It's not to say you'll never be tempted again. But if you make, you know, that's part of the reason that going to the altar is an important thing. It, it is a public acknowledgement. Uh, a lot of times, if God can get me down an altar, it helps me to keep out of trouble Monday morning. I'm just making a confession, all right? A lot of times, if I'm willing to stand up from my seat to acknowledge that I've done something wrong, to find a place at the altar to weep and confess my sins, it's a lot easier to stay out of sin the next day because I remember what I had to do to get it right before God. We see that they identified sin's influence. I want you to notice a third thing. Turn back to chapter 16 
of the book of Numbers, chapter 16. I wish I could read this whole chapter, but time won't permit me. But I will give you a synopsis. There's a man by the name of Korah in Israel at this time. Korah is a Levite, but not all of the Levites were priests. Most of the Levites never were employed in, in the priesthood, per se, but rather oftentimes they labored in the work of the tabernacle. Now you say, well, what's the difference? Well, not all of the work that was involved in the tabernacle was priestly work. You had a large tent that had to be raised and lowered. You had work that had to be done. Oftentimes when they came to a site, I mean, listen, I don't know why we think it's any different today than it was back then. Uh, you know, you think about the size of the tabernacle, about the size of our life center over there. I mean, you, you can't just lay that thing down anywhere. Oftentimes you get to a place and excavation would have to be done. A place would have to be made for it. The tent would have to be carried. It would have to be erected and set up once they got there. And so there there was a lot of work that had to be done in the tabernacle beyond just the work of the priesthood. Korah is part of this group that's tasked with carrying out the everyday menial labor in the work of the tabernacle. Well, that begins to not sit too well with Korah. And Korah begins an insurrection, a rebellion against the line of Aaron. Aaron's line was the one that was employed in the priesthood. And he basically says to Moses, you take too much on yourself. Or in other words, can I put it this way? I've heard this a few times. Who are you to say that's the way it's going to be? That's <laughs> so what he said. Who are you to say? What, what, who made you the boss of this? How, why do you get to decide this? And he begins to challenge the priesthood. Listen to what it says in verse number 25. It says, And Moses rose up and went unto Dathan and Abiram. These are co-conspirators with Korah. And the elders of Israel followed him. And he spake unto the congregation, saying, Depart, I pray you, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest ye be consumed in all their sins. So they got up from the tabernacle of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram on every side. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood in the door of their tents, and their wives and their sons and their little children. I'm not going to read to the end of the chapter, but you know what happens. God rains judgment down upon them. The earth opens up and swallows these men. But I want you to notice the decision that the children of Levi made, along with the other children of Israel. Let me say, first off, when there was a line in the sand, they determined their direction, and they decided they weren't going to live in sin. Once they realized who was leading them down that path, they identified sin's influence, and they eradicated it from their presence but let me say, when insurrection took place, when there was an ungodly, unleavened or eleven group of sin in their midst, they permitted God's purging to take place within their tribe. I'm sure that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram probably had friends in the tribe of Levi. I'm sure that they probably had people that cared for them in the tribe of Levi. But God essentially says this, My hand has gone out from them. And move out of the way, because I'm going to destroy them. And if you hang on to them, you're going to be destroyed with them. The tribe of Levi said, all right, God, if that's what you wish, then we'll let them go. And we'll let you purge them out of our midst. I'll tell you something. There are things in our life that if we hang on to it, God's going to bury us with it. There are things in our life that God will not abide and if we hang on to that sin and we don't step back as God begins to chasten us 
as God begins to convict us, as God begins to make known to us that that element in our life is not pleasing to Him. Listen, it could be a relationship. It could be a habit. It could be a practice. It could be a spirit. It could be an attitude. It could be something that we're doing. It could be something that we're doing. But when God convicts us and shit to us, that's God's way of saying, I want that out of your life. Step back out of the way. Let hold or let go of it and allow me to take it out of your hands through conviction, through yielding, through confession, through forsaken. Uh, let me remove that influence from your life. And if we cling to it, we may just face more of the chastisement of God. You know, God's trying to purge us in our life. He's trying to mold us and He's trying to shape us. It's not that there was anything inherently wrong with Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. If they had kept their place, they had a grand and privileged place within the nation of Israel. But you know what happened? They begin to rise up and challenge God's authority and God's way. You know, that's true in our life too. There may be things that aren't wrong in and of themselves, but they begin to vie for the throne of Christ in our life. It could be anything. You know, I've seen people make idols out of their children. That's sad to say, but I've seen people do that. I've, I've seen people make idols out of relationships, a boyfriend or girlfriend, young people in particular, man. I, I mean, it, it, and I'm not trying to poke fun. I mean, young people, I, I, I used to be young. Anybody in here used to be young? <laughs> Some of y'all said, I don't know. I can't remember. I used to be a young person. I Man, I know what it's like. But you see young people, man, they live and breathe and they live and die based upon the relationship from week to week. And sometimes it's a relationship that God points to. And it's not necessarily that those things are wrong in and of themselves, but we exalt them to the place that they have more authority and more influence in our life than Christ does. And God says, I've got to purge it, and I've got to take it away, and I've got to remove it. You know, I've seen Christians cling to those things till their life shipwrecked. Cling to them and refuse to let them go until God literally had to pry it from the wreckage of their life. We ought to be willing to step back and say, Lord, go ahead and purge it and take it away. You know, that is something we have to allow. I've shared this analogy with you before, but they asked Michelangelo one time how he carved the statue of David. And uh, he gave this answer. It sounds kind of smart, Alex, so I may have liked Michelangelo. I don't know, but he said this. He said, I just remove everything that's not David. He said, I look at that huge slab of marble, and, and, and I just envision what I want to see there. And I begin to slowly chip away until there's nothing left that doesn't resemble David. You know, you've heard it before, and I've shared it before, and I've heard it before, that that's very similar to what God is doing in your life and mine. He envisions in us that we might be conformed unto the image of God's dear Son. He looks in us and sees in us Christ, and He begins to chip away and take things away, seeking to leave nothing except that which resembles the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to allow Him to do that in our lives. Oftentimes, if we cling and don't permit God to purge in our lives, it'll bring God's judgment. I believe they dealt with sin in these three different ways. And I, I don't have time to preach. I'm just going to give it to you. But let me give you three things that resulted. Listen to what it says in Numbers 3.12. God says this about the Levites. He said, And I, behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of all the firstborn that openeth the matrix among the children of Israel. Therefore the Levites shall be mine. Let me say that even though they started off on this path of sin because they dealt with it in the right way, they were accepted of God. Your life doesn't have to be a shipwreck. Your relationship with the Lord doesn't have to be in pieces. Your fellowship with Him doesn't have to be cold and dead and formal. You can have a living, breathing relationship with Him if you'll only learn how to deal with sin 
in the right way. They were accepted by God. Let me say they were protected by God. In Deuteronomy twelve nineteen, God gives this commandment to the Israelites. He says, Take heed to thyself that thou forsake not the Levite as long as thou livest upon the earth. Let me tell you something. That hedge that is so quickly removed when we live in sin can be very quickly built back up. God's blessing can be upon our life once again. God's protection can take place. I understand God always protects us. But you also understand that sometimes God has to chasten us. And in the same way that God may be chastening us for our sin, if we'll yield unto Him, He can remove that chastisement. He can give blessing to our lives once again. And then finally, I want you to notice a third thing. They were accepted by God and protected by God. But thank the Lord that they were used by God. The Bible says this in Numbers chapter 8 and verse 19. I've given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and to his sons from among the children of Israel to do the service of the children of Israel in the tabernacle of the congregation and to make an atonement for the children of Israel that there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come nigh unto the sanctuary. Now, you and I, you know why we know of the Levites because to the Levites were given the priesthood. They didn't start off in that shape, but because they were willing to repent, confess, and forsake their sin... They were used of God in a mighty way. You may have sinned. You may have messed up in your life. It doesn't mean God's ready to throw you away. That doesn't mean God has given up on using you. I've talked to men oftentimes in ministry that have had some troubles. They've, they've had relationships blow up and they feel like God can't use them anymore. And let me say, I believe in standards in the ministry. Somebody say amen to that. I believe in standards in the ministry. I understand there may be things that disqualify a man from a certain role or a certain capacity. But there's not a single saved, born-again believer that can't be used by God in some way, shape, fashion, or form. There's not a single, listen to me tonight, there's not a single person in this room that God can't use you if you'll yield to Him and be a vessel that's fit for His use. If you'll clean your life or let Him clean it, allow Him to purge it. If you've got sin in your life tonight, you don't have to keep it in your life. You can confess it. You can forsake it. You can ask God's forgiveness and He'll forgive you. Maybe a big thing that you think that God couldn't forgive you of, but He can. It may be a small thing that you don't think you have to ask forgiveness for, but you do. If there's sin present in your life, in whatever shape, fashion, or form, confess and forsake it tonight and let God wash you clean in the promise of His faithfulness and His righteousness. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.